Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Dana Suskind about her book, 30 Million Words, Building a Child's Brain. Dana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Trevor. So I was wondering if we could begin the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes, so um, I am a mother. I'm a pediatric cochlear implant surgeon, and a social scientist. Most of your listeners probably know a cochlear implant is an amazing piece of technology that allows a child born deaf the ability to hear, to talk, and really to mainstream both educationally and socially. Um, And it was my experience as a cochlear implant surgeon that really brought me to you know, started me on this journey into the world of social sciences and educational disparities uh, and to leading a research program called the 30 Million Words Initiative, uh, which is focused on helping close what is sort of commonly known as the word gap, um, that is, the educational, the early language environment disparities of children born into poverty. And so how did you um, decide to write the book, 30 Million Words? Why... um put this information in book form? So, uh, you know, my my day job, other than being a surgeon, is running this research program, um, 30 Million Words Initiative, which really translates the science for parents so that they can understand, number one, that their language and that they are the key architects in the early years of their children's brain development. Uh, and through their language, they can build not just their children's vocabulary, but their whole their children's whole brain, really getting them ready for school. And as I was working with my incredible team on all these different research uh, programs and these curricula, uh, I realized in the broader population that there was, you know, that the broader population could really benefit as well from understanding, you know, how a baby's brain is built through the power of language. And importantly, understand that 
early childhood education is an important part of the educational continuum um, in for all children, uh, and especially children born into poverty in our sort of attempts to help close the achievement gap. And so I always say this book is as much, you know, the sort of why and how language builds children's brains as, as much as that is a call to action that early childhood really needs to be an important part, an intentional part of the educational, um, the educational timeline, if you will. So um, you actually begin 30 million words, not by talking about the word gap among hearing children, but among uh, a word gap in the deaf community. You discuss in depth different language approaches um, used with deaf children. Can you talk a little bit more about how these two things are related? Yes. So, you know, I I guess you could say this book is as much, this book really reflects my own sort of intellectual journey as to coming to the understanding that language is power sits at the heart of the development of each and every child's ability to reach their potential. And in that way, really, the beginning of my journey was as a pediatric cochlear implant surgeon and working with uh, children, you know, who were born deaf to hearing parents and you know, just seeing the disparities in outcomes after implantation in children who had equal potential. But part of sort of that historical aspect is understanding, in, in understanding how language affects all children, uh, and especially ch- deaf children historically, we can understand why language is so important. So this book, you know, and I feel strongly that all languages, whether it be sign language or spoken language, is equally you know, is effective in building children's brains. But an important point is that 90 to 95% of children born deaf are born to hearing parents. And as a result, they don't have, you know, sign language, which is what has been traditionally used with children born deaf, isn't a native language for uh, for hearing parents. And as a result, um, many deaf children in the past had very sort of low educational outcomes, you know, an average of fourth grade reading level, not because they didn't have the cognitive ability or the intellectual potential, but because they suffered from, you know, an earlier word gap. You know, parents who loved them, you know, desperately wanted the best for them, but didn't know sign language. And so, and then showing how access to sound through the cochlear implant changed all that that, you know, you could, you know, implant this small device, give a child access to sound, and suddenly the, you know, parent who couldn't sign could use spoken language in helping build children's brains and how, you know, many of my patients would have, you know, would be learning and reading on par with their hearing kids, uh, uh, hearing peers. And um, so as part of this book, I actually talked about, two patients who started me on this journey. Their names were Michelle and Zach and had, you know, came to me, you know, when they were very young, before the age of one, uh, having been uh, born and diagnosed profoundly deaf, to hearing parents who loved them desperately, who wanted them to live in the hearing speaking world. You know, they both had equal potentials. Um, and But after implantation had very, very different outcomes. So Zach, you know, was you know, started almost immediately hearing the sounds, understanding the sounds. And when I was writing this book and he was in the third grade, he was, you know, in a mainstream public school classroom, reading, doing math on par with his hearing peers. I would say he was getting in trouble with his hearing at the same level as his hearing peers as well. But importantly, 
you know, he was on Paul grade level, right, despite being born deaf. Mm-hmm. And his life was no longer going to be defined by his hearing loss, but by Zach himself. Whereas Michelle, Michelle, when, uh, you know, almost immediately, you know, after I implanted her, you know, you could, she could hear sounds that, that that wasn't an issue, but she didn't seem to understand what they meant. And spoken language, sign language, everything came, you know, fairly slowly. And when I was writing this book, she too was in the third grade in a public school classroom, but a self-contained special ed classroom. She had very little spoken language, very little sign language. Her teachers said that she was reading, you know, at the kindergarten level. And it was so dramatically different. And, you know, it was that, like, why these two children who had equal potentials, no doubt about it, parents who loved them equally, wanted, you know, had the same dreams and aspirations, but such differences. And as I reflected upon it, I realized that the key differences had nothing to do with the children, right? But mm-hmm. rather the world in which they had been born. And, you know, I talk about, you know, Michelle's mom, who, you know, again, had the same, loved her, wanted the same for her, you know, struggled, you know, in and out of homelessness, you know, barely being able to keep a roof over uh, Michelle's head or food on the table. And that, you know, that, you know, social determinants of health had huge outcomes. And I realized that, you know, the cochlear implant, while it could bring sound to a child's brain, something else was needed to make those sounds have meaning. And it was that experience and learning about the importance of language that made me understand that language is at the heart of, you know, children's brain development. And so this book is, you know, really help, you know, taking people through sort of my journey to understanding how powerful language is. So it sounds like there's a critical period for children to be exposed to language, whether they're hearing children being exposed to oral language or deaf children being exposed to sign language. Can you say a little bit more about uh, what is so important about those early years and language? It's often called the critical language period or the sensitive language period. Basically, our brains in the first, you know, three to five years are, you know, built for learning language. In fact, language is sort of the catalyst for all of brain development. And, you know, it's not to say, and I'll go into sort of what I mean by that, but it, and I want to emphasize that it's not as that you miss this period that, you know, it's too late. I always like to say it is never too late, but it is much easier, right, doing, you know, building it right the first time as opposed to going back and remediating. Right. Um, because when you think about our brains, right, our brains, unlike any other organ, right, our heart, our lungs, our kidneys, they come out fully formed, right, functioning as they will for their entire lives. But the brain actually comes out pretty underdeveloped. You know, it's absolutely dependent on what it it encounters on its ride to full development. And in the first three years of life, 80 to 85% of the physical brain will be built, right? That's sort of like saying my daughter, who's five foot nine, would have been almost five feet tall by the age of three, right? It's remarkable growth. And it's because of that reason that it is, and that if you miss that time period, right, the brain, you know, has all these important neural connections, right, in the beginning. It's making like 700 to 1,000 new neural connections in the beginning. And, but what happens is something called, you know, it, first it's neuroplasticity, the ability to learn skills new easily. And it's language that in the beginning helps build the brain and all these skills. And I'll go into what I mean by that. Um, but what happens after, you know, later on, three to five, is that the brain starts uh, 
under figuring out, oh, well, these connections are used and these connections aren't used. And it begins to prune away those unused connections or weakly used connections to form a much more efficient machine. And as a result, if your brain isn't getting a lot of language stimulation, right? So mm-hmm. with Michelle, I gave her the cochlear implant. She could hear sounds, but if she wasn't hearing a lot of language, the brain didn't realize, wow, those lang- that, that sound is meant for communication. And those important connections start getting pruned away. Mm-hmm. And so that's why her ability to understand language was much less than Zach's. And because she had sort of missed that important time period. If you don't use it, you lose it because the brain is, you know, not only smart, it's analytical and it's analyzing what connections aren't being used. And it's sort of, it's sort of like a rose gardener with an overgrown rose bush. You know what? You know, I've got to make it, you know, make this crazy mess of all these neural connections much more efficient, you know, this, this connection's not used. I'm going to prune it away. Well, you know, didn't realize that just because this baby was born into a, an austere language environment, <laughs> that was an important connection. So. You describe uh, 30 million words as a, a sort of a curriculum for parents, among other things. And there are three T's. There's tune in, talk more, and take turns. Can you tell us a little bit about those three T's? Um, what are they and what research informs them? Yes. So, so you know, all of our, the 30 Million Words Initiative, you know, develops evidence-based curriculum for other people to use, whether it be in maternity wards, in daycare centers or early learning centers, and with parents, most importantly. Um, and what we realized is that, you know, when you look at the science literature, what a rich language environment is, it's a pretty rich, it's a pretty complex thing. And you can't, and of course we can't give people, you know, a hundred, you know, 30 million things they need to do to help build our children's brains. So what we've done is we've called down what a rich language environment is to the three T's. Tune in, talk more, take turns. And what is tune in? Tune in is the most nuanced of the T. It's really you know, seeing what your child's interested in, following your child's lead, joint, you know, I know most of your listeners are from the education background, so I'll use all those words, joint attention, child-directed speech, you know, the sing-songy, melodic, um, sometimes called baby talk speech. All of those things are called tune-in to really get your baby's attention and focusing your attention on your baby. Uh, or your child, or the child. Uh, talk more is just as it sounds, talking more, using rich vocabulary, narrating what you're doing, whether, you know, if you're a parent, you know, doing the laundry, I guess if you're an early childhood educator, you know, it's cleanup time and talking it through. And take turns, take turns is one of the most powerful T's. It's really viewing the child as a conversational partner, not just somebody to talk at, to talk with, um, because as anybody knows, you know, you've got to practice before you can become perfect, and conversation is the same way. So in our work with parents, we really emphasize that even before a child has a real first word, they can have a conversation and to respond to any gesture, and this is the same for educators, gestures, glances, um, you know, babbles, real words. You know, all of those things are fair game, and uh, it's very important to, you know, keep the conversation going. So those three T's, you know, go through all of our curriculum, and it's really the measuring stick for parents to use and, and educators. Sorry. 
and to be clear, um, it's, it's never too late, um, for these things. So you would offer the same advice for parents of older children? Uh, I would offer the three T's advice to anyone, to anyone. In fact, I always joke that, you know, not only is, are the three T's good for older children, but probably with your spouse, <laughs> <laughs> right? probably in the Middle East, East crisis or any type of thing, because let's face it, it is the fundamental for human interaction. You know, what's good for children's brains is probably good for adult brains. If we just tuned into what the other person's trying to communicate, you know, talked about it, really listened and have a conversation, I think we could <laughs> cure many of our world's problems. The book not only has advice for parents, but it also has policy solutions. And so I'm wondering if you could tell us what changes um, at the state or federal level would have the most immediate or dramatic effects for children? Yeah, so I think the, you know, the call to action from the educational policy piece is really about more closely aligning the science with the policy, right? Mm -hmm. And the science is absolutely clear, right? Language, not language, learning begins on day one, not the first day of pre-K or the first day of kindergarten. Learning, 85% of our physical brain starts at day one. And unless policymakers and educators um, really, you know, make early childhood an intentional part of the educational curriculum, you know, trying to close this achievement gap and giving every child the chance to reach their potentials is going to be, you know, a never-ending struggle. It doesn't mean that, I, you know, we have all the answers, right? I mean, it's a complex thing. Um, but, we've, you know, we've got to, you know, you know, I wanted this science to be accessible for policymakers so, so they understood why it is we need to start early. Um, and use science also in developing our social programs. In terms of, you know, the actual, actual practical, what would it look like? You know, this is part of my evolution as well in thinking. Um, I do think that in the earlier years, you know, obviously we're not going to have the common core curriculum in the zero to three space. Um, but I think it'll probably have much more of a public health sort of feel, right? Because it's really all adults, particularly caregivers, whether they be in the home or in the center or friends, family, neighbors, need to un- not only understand the science, but, you know, the strategies of providing a rich early language environment. Um, and so there, you know, we could, you know, we could probably spend another two hours in the ways that we could do it. Um, but I think that's a, that's the key driving force. We've got to start early and align our educational system uh, much more with what we know from a science perspective. And um, I, I think that you're presenting your recommendations as research-based and pragmatic approaches to addressing the achievement gap rather than solutions that are grounded in any particular ideology. I was wondering if there are specific parenting approaches, um, academic pedagogies, or just aspects of our conventional wisdom wisdom right now that um, you're running into tension with or attempting to kind of change people's minds on. You know, and maybe you you can expand a little bit more, but I'll, I'll tell you, you know, people often ask me, well, you know, is this exactly, you know, is this in some way coming against, you know, a cultural view or a parenting view? We are very specifically not a parenting program. Mm-hmm. We are a program about translating the science so that all families, 
from every SES, from every background, can understand what the science is showing um, and addressing a common desire for all parents, right? I've never met a parent who doesn't say, I want my child to be happy, I want my child to be successful. And in truth, our programs are developed in partnership with parents, right? This is not like, you know, some ivory tower program. Here, this is what the science says, go do it. How do you translate the science? Parents have been very um, involved with. And, in fact, they view this program, you know, many of the parents that we worked on, with on the south side of Chicago view this program as theirs because they helped build it. And, it, and, it, and that's the absolute truth. Um, but, you know, keeping away the science from parents, I would say, is fairly unethical. And really what parents do with the science, that's up to them. We're, we're not about telling people what to do. We're about um, sharing this. And I guess you could sort of say that that's what the book is about, right? Mm-hmm. You can't tell policymakers what to do, but I can share the science in ways that make it clear that, you know, unless we start early, and unless we, you know, I always say that, you know, when we advocate for the power of parent talk, right, we must also advocate for the parent, right? This book is not about, you know, go talk to your kid or telling educators, go talk to the kids. It's also about a call to action that, you know, these... Talk doesn't happen in a vacuum. For families and communities living in violent neighborhoods with unstable employment, you know, unstable child care, right, mm-hmm. we must be able to support these caregivers so that they can invest in their parents, in their children, because the science doesn't change. The way the brains are hardwired doesn't change. But how we can approach these things from a social policy perspective can change so we can help optimize and allow all parents to do what they want to do, be their children's first and most important teacher. I'm wondering, um, as you're translating the science along with the parents whom you work with, um, so that everyone has access to them and they can use it in their homes and in their early childhood centers, um, have any of your recommendations been met with a surprise? Um, have, you, have you changed people's assumptions? Parents? Uh, yeah, of parents yeah, in particular. Well, so, you know, the... What are some of the the common responses from parents? I mean, yeah. you know, first off, we've had, you know, because we're a research program, look, I have to be quite frank, these are people who decide to be part of the program. This is, mm-hmm. um, so some people could say, well, that's a, a biased population. Maybe it is, right? I mean, the next step is definitely scaling up. But the parents have mm-hmm. been incredibly receptive. Some of the, you know, some of the most sort of basic things have come as a surprise, that learning doesn't start you know, the first day of school, but on the first day of life, parents eat up the science. Um, some of the, you know, sort of strategies that we talk about, um, as you know, <clears throat> the use of directives or prohibitions isn't necessarily a, a great thing for ch- uh, building a child's brain. And um, really explaining how, you know, you can change a directive, you know, put your shoes on into, oh, Johnny, what do we have to do now? You know, right, we have to go put on the shoes, and it's a verbal back and forth. And explaining why that approach through the three T's, right, it's not about, oh, using a directive is bad. It's about showing how explaining to grow your child's brain and using the three T's can be just as effective and have all these other positive ramifications uh, has been met with, you know, you know, great, I guess, delight, or if you will, that's sort of a, a silly word, but parents have been quite very receptive to that. Um, parents have loved the math and spatial talk um, 
modules. Um, I think that sort of learning that using more number words and more spatial words in the first three years of life can help not only build your child's vocabulary, but build their math ability um, is, comes as quite a surprise. I mean, I must admit, I didn't know the science. Um, and, you know, even in our research, we've shown that in one module, one week module, we were able to significantly increase how much parents talked about number words and spatial words and how much sort of teaching they did around that idea. So, you know, I think that, you know, parents are hungry for this information. So. Um, you write about the benefits of parents engaging children in conversation, reading to them, modeling reading during these critical years from birth to age three. But soon after that time, uh, most children are entering public schools in which language skills are taught more explicitly. Is there anything that teachers can learn from your approach you recommend to parents, or do children need something different at later stages in their development? You know, as I mentioned, the, the, the three T's, sort of the fundamentals of children's brain development, how language builds children's brains, you know, I think is an important science for, for everyone to know. And I'm sure many of those in the education field, you know, already know this stuff. But I really, you know, I trace back all the nuanced science, you know, related to not just math and spatial, but, you know, empathy to, you know, self-regulation, grit, you know, because there's a pretty robust science showing how language uh, can grow all those different skills. And I think that educators understanding this not only might inform how they interact with their, their students, but give them an ability to help sort of foster or mentor parents' knowledge. Um, you know, many of these parents you know, don't know this, so it can help them not only with their children who are older, but, you know, their younger children and give them a common language. Uh, in fact, we're very eager at, at the lab to adapt our parent program into an early learning program to give early childhood educators sort of the same curriculum for twofold reasons. One is, you know, it can certainly inform their practice. I mean, it informed my parenting, um, but importantly, give them a common language with parents, a common language that sort of removes sort of stigmatizing good versus bad parenting to, to a science-based common language. And we've, you know, as a way for really engaging parents, engaging parents in their children's educational um, uh, trajectories as well as in the classroom. So I think it could be quite powerful. And I'll tell you a funny story. In fact, our parents who are part of the home visiting program have actively, I mean, not on our suggestion, uh, shared this information with their early learning, special, you know, early child care uh, educators um, and even have asked them to come in and watch a session or two. So I think that, you know, the more we have a, a common approach in language, the more powerful it is. Um, in your last response, you mentioned some of those dispositions parents may want for their children, uh, grit and empathy. Uh, you also have mentioned some areas in which they may want their children to excel, like in mathematical or creative thinking. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, research or a piece of advice you have about some of those specific areas. Um, so if, if I want my child to be better at math, are there any choices that I should be making about my language? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think, it, you know, why language has such a powerful impact really comes down to the fact that in the early years, it's building the whole foundation of the brain, right? Mm -hmm. And as a result, 
you know, often language is sort of pigeonholed into, oh, it builds vocabulary. But in truth, because it's a fundamental brain builder, it impacts, as you mentioned, math and spatial ability, self-regulation, grit, you know, empathy, you know, uh, creativity. Because let's face it, how we interact with our children, much of it comes through language. So I, I don't want it to be dissected out so people are like, oh, today I'm only going to do math talk. You know, it's, it's sort of a holistic thing. So I don't want to make people crazy. But so sort of, you know, going through each and every one. In terms of the math and spatial ability, uh, there was some really, there's some really nice research showing that in the first three years of life, children, you know, hear a huge, um, difference in number of math and spatial words. And those children, uh, who heard more number words, more math words, more math talk, more spatial words, uh, actually at, you know, entrance into kindergarten have, you know, a more you know, uh, more excelled in their math and spatial ability. And it even, I think, you know, correlates to uh, third grade, you know, math and reading ability. So it's pretty powerful using math and spatial talk in the early years. And people don't really think about it. Um, but it's a really easy thing to incorporate. Um, many, many parents, as we know, have sort of math anxiety. But, you know, math doesn't have to be hard, you know, especially in the early years. So so that's that. In terms of grit um, or perseverance, I, I, you know, using the word grit is, you know, it's questionable whether, you know, we can actually use the word grit. But, um, but perseverance, you know, it really comes back to Carol Dweck, who I know that many of the people in the education world know through growth mindset mm -hmm. um, and the use of process versus person-based praise. Process praise, praise being, oh, I like how hard you worked on that puzzle as opposed to, wow, you're so smart. You did that puzzle great. Um, and as many of your listeners know, the use of more process-based praise um, results in children persevering through challenges uh, much more rather than giving up because they realize that, you know, outcomes are the result of hard work rather than innate ability. In terms of that, believe it or not, there's research showing that in the first three years of life, you know, children who hear more process-based praise have a much more growth mindset, you know, on the entrance of kindergarten, and as a result, you know, persevere or will take on a much more challenging task, uh, which I think is quite amazing, right? Mm -hmm. So just that little tweak. Uh, I always say if I had known all the science, you know, without having my children, I would have done it very differently, so I don't want anybody to feel guilty. Um, in terms of, you know, but then the flip side, uh, going to sort of the generosity uh, side of things is that you think, well, you know, well, how do you praise your child for doing a really good, you know, immoral thing? And there was a study that showed, you know, you think from what we just talked about, the growth mindset, that you would say, well, either you say, I, you know, I like, you'd rather not say being a good helper, rather I like how you helped so-and-so. But in fact, it's just the opposite, you know, in terms of connecting a child to doing a good and sort of empathetic thing, if you will. It's much better to say, you know, you were such a good helper. 
because, you know, children want to feel innately good. We all want to feel innately good. And so by praising the person in that realm, um, you're allowing that and resulting in a child who's, I guess, going to help be more helpful the next time. So uh, at times in the book, I noticed that there are some tensions between different things parents might want to do to help their kids. For example, um, parents may try to raise their children to be bilingual, but this may come at the expense of developing a more extensive vocabulary in one language. Can you talk more about some of these tensions and then um, how, how research informs what advice you give to parents? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm not, you know, in terms of, I, I think the, the most important thrust of the, the book in terms of biling, being bilingual is more related to parents who come, you know, who are English language learners, uh, specifically, you know, those uh, who speak Spanish and the critical importance that parents use their native language uh, because the science is quite clear. Children hearing, you know, native language are going to have the, you know, the best results. And so often what we hear in this country, or I've even heard anecdotally, is parents from other, you know, from Spanish-speaking countries being told, look, try to use your broken English as opposed to your, your native Spanish because you're in this, you know, in this new country. And that is absolutely the wrong thing scientifically. Uh, in the early years, you know, Language is building the whole of the brain. And so with the language of the native tongue comes so much more than just even the vocabulary. And you really shortchange children by not exposing them to the native tongue. You know, of course, that means that uh, the children who have Spanish as their first language, when they get to preschool, I mean, they need, you know, native English modelers. Uh, and that's certainly why preschool is so important, uh, et cetera. But I think that's my most important thrust. In terms of bilingual, you know, raising a bilingual child, you know, I, it's not to say that, you know, I, I wish my children were bilingual, of course. Um, you know, understanding that while in the beginning, when a child is being raised bilingual or trilingual, you know, the, you know, their vocabulary in each of the different languages may, may, may be smaller, right? But I guess if you add all the vocabularies together, you know, it's quite large. Um, but to, you know, to remember in the end, you have a child who has two languages as opposed to one. And let's face it, in this country, we're, you know, going towards a, we're very much a multilingual, um, nation. And I think that's an, incre- an incredible strength. Well, Dana, we've taken up a lot of your time. So I'll just ask you one more question. What are you working on now? So right now, so I, you know, as you know, I'm, you know, talking about the book, but really the, I want everybody to know that this book really comes out of a very complex you know, a very extensive and exciting research program uh, called the 30 Million Words Initiative, where we're developing curriculum from maternity wards, pediatricians' offices, home visiting. We, believe it or not, have a partnership with the Children's Museum, Chicago Children's Museum, Chicago Public Library, and even are developing little interstitials for a Netflix program that Jim Henson Studio wow. is developing. So it's very, very exciting. It's called Word Party. That sounds like a great project. Thank you, Dana, for coming on the show today. Thank you so much, Trevor. Thank you very much. All right. Take care, Dana. Bye-bye.